there's something that I, I, I can kind of deal with, but I think it's something that we have to address as we go forward post-COVID and post the whole wave of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is again opening up a lot of deep-rooted racism with the fact that it's really interesting that I, because I'm a black woman, I'm not expected to be a complex person with multiple views and somebody who can actually navigate the world holding several different views and, and being able to communicate and connect to several different people. So I think one of the things I'm really proud of is my ability to withstand a lot of racism and a lot of sexism by a lot of well-meaning white women you know, within the development sector and well-meaning white men who think that they know what an African woman should be doing and should be thinking and really just like get up every day and just like carry on because the whole point is that I don't have the privilege to wait around for somebody that has my identical political ideology to become leaders and everything else. I think I'm kind of proud of the resilience that I've had throughout this because it has been super hard and everybody thinks that what I do is just for fun and it's not actually a job. It is a job. It's like people always say, oh, how do you do what you do? I'm like, I've got three law degrees and I study before I open my mouth. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Nimco Ali, OBE, is a British Somali feminist and social activist. In 2010, along with psychotherapist Leila Hussain, Nimco founded Daughters of Eve, a non-profit organisation established to help young women and girls with a focus on providing education and raising awareness on female genital mutilation. Nimco underwent the procedure herself when she was just seven years old and later suffered health complications which led her to undergo reconstructive surgery. In 2019, Nimco co-founded the Five Foundation, the global partnership to end FGM with Brendan Wynne. The non-profit works to raise the issue of FGM on the international agenda and re-grant funding to grassroots organisations working to end FGM. Nimco was shortlisted for a Woman of the Future Award in 2015 in the Community Spirits category. I um, was born in East Africa in Somaliland, the capital of that which is Hergesa, and I grew up um, between Cardiff and Manchester as a child, spending my formative years in Cardiff and then went to university in, in Bristol. So when did you move over here? How old were you? So I was four when I fully settled in the UK, but then we were kind of traveling and then went over to, back to Somalia in the late 80s for a holiday and the war broke out. So I've like, you know, been here full time since I was four, but permanently unable to leave anywhere else uh, from the age of seven. Wow. What were you like at school? Were you a good student? Did you enjoy learning and education and all of that kind of thing? Yeah, like education was one of my kind of saviors because like, you know, having undergone FGM at seven and like, you know, trying to really find a way of trying to articulate the pain and the experience that I had and very much feeling like everybody from my community was completely different to me because 
they all had FGM and felt okay with it. And then everybody else from the white community had an FGM and had no understanding of it. So education was the only way that I could really find an identity because especially history, history was my favorite subject and also English. So yeah, I was really good at school. I think I self-harmed with being an overachiever. <laughs> Do you mind telling us more about what happened to you when you were seven? And Yeah, so when I was um, seven on our way, well, when we were in um, East Africa and then on, on the way back when, I, when we came by Djibouti, I had this thing called FGM, which is female genital mutilation. And 200 million women in the world are survivors of female genital mutilation. And within my ethnic group, which is the Somalis, it stands at 98%. So we have one of the highest percentage uptakes of FGM in the world. So were you, the first, you weren't the first person in your family to have this practice done no, to was, you? No, no, I wasn't. So every single woman in my family, up to about my niece and my little cousin, who are 11 and 9, everybody else, every other woman I've loved, I've known, even in my extended family, had all undergone FGM. So it was like the norm within our within our ethnic group, as I said, in the sense that whether you're from North Somalia or East, I mean, or the South, it was still, or even Djibouti, which had some ethnically Somali people there, it was still something that happened to girls of, like, you know, around the age of um, six to about six, nine. So were you prepared for it? I mean, how prepared can you be as a seven-year-old? Or was it something that was kind of sprung on you? Or how did it kind of come about? Because I was living in the West and also um, I had no context to it. And I think that's why education and really finding information and really always finding context of things became a real important thing to me. So it, it happened really out of context as well in the sense that I had the FGM, but I didn't have any other kind of gender specific form of chastisation or being raised to be subservient not to like, you know, have aspirations and all these things. So mm. I had the FGM some kind of, I think, like cultural identity thing that my mother and my grandmother thought and then that was then and it was never really spoken about so I had it at seven and then at 11 I had severe complications linked to it so I had to be rushed into hospital to have a defibrillation because the FGM I had was a very invasive form of FGM. It's so even just it kind of gives me shivers and I god knows how you must have felt about it but like you were saying earlier it clearly then shaped your own education and what you went forwards into the world to do is that right or was it something that you kind of baby steps towards it no because I think in terms of what I kind of like what FGM did was kind of really put a halt on my childhood and to say that you stop being a child at seven is actually a really sad thing but I did so essentially it was was, was this whole thing of like if I was going to grow up and be an adult I think having information and education was a key thing. So that kind of really got me into the thing of really knowing my rights and knowing the ability to be able to articulate. I think what for me was, I was unable to articulate what had happened to me. And that was quite traumatic in, in, in the sense that I thought I was speaking English. I thought I was having those conversations with my teachers and everybody else, but they weren't able to understand. And then when um, when I had the actual medical intervention at 11, I thought you could actually physically see what was happening to my anatomy. So you should be able to mm. understand without me saying any words. But I think, again, there was, a, there was a massive disconnect in that. So, yeah, it kind of shaped my life in a sense that I was very passionate about studying history, very passionate about studying things to do with equalities, the law, gender. Those became the kind of the anchors in terms of my politics and the things that I really wanted to read and write about. Was it confusing for you to marry up 
the Western way of thinking with the Somali way of thinking, when those two worlds collided for you, was that the main challenge or what was your thinking? Because you've been so young, like seven, eleven. I think my saviour was reading Animal Farm in 1984 as an 11 and 10 year old because then I just realised that the world was completely like it was possible to be one person thinking differently from everybody else and to be seeing forms of oppression and issues where others refuse to see them so I actually just thought that everybody was the issue not me which doesn't really serve you well as a child always thinking that everybody's wrong and you're the one that's right Mm -hmm. but in that kind of standpoint I think I was it was kind of like everybody else was just like acting like as though it was normal and I just said well actually it's not really that normal even though if you've had it or you haven't had it if you haven't had it I'm telling you about it and if you have then you should know but I don't understand why I'm I'm trying to convince you that the pain that you felt is actually legitimate and then yeah and then I just read like Animal Farm and just really understood that some people just go along with things. What were your first steps into becoming more of an activist around this area? What were the first things that you did? I, I used to talk about myself in the third person and even like to this day I always think what if Snowball had come back to the animal farm and started to tell people what the real commandments were and everything else. So I had that kind of, I would always talk about FGM in this kind of very third person way. And I I remember somebody saying, oh, are you studying the subject? And I was just thinking, I've been studying it since I was seven because it's something that I've kind of sat with and had the ability to think about and have these kind of conversations. So yeah, it's been, um, for me, I think my, my activism started with really trying to correct misunderstandings and misconceptions around the issue and around the narrative of why it was happening and trying to say it was violence against women and girls rather than saying it was a cultural thing that just happened so then then when I really put my name to it it was really interesting because then it wasn't about listening to the words but trying to find out my story about FGM and I was thinking well that's not really the thing because I don't really want to be the center of the attention I want to be talking about the issue Mm. so I think my activism started as a way of like you know really creating um creating real dialogue and correcting misconceptions by well-meaning people what was your first vocation then would you say out of education what did you do first because obviously there's the different movements and campaigns and the companies that so, yeah so i went into the fast stream i went into civil service because i think one of my things is that i'm very analytical and just i can kind of problem solve and be strategic it's what's one of the things where i like to again think outside the box so in terms of, I think a lot of people think that campaigning is something that you do and you just stand around and hold placards, but it's very strategic. If you are going to change legislation, if you are going to win hearts and minds, you have to be able to codify something and put it in a place. So you basically highlight the issue, you get it to the public forum, and then you kind of go for the change maker. And I remember, like, you know, very, very much at the beginning, like talking about things within, like, you know, whether it was about HIV in public health, whether it was about immunizations, whether it was all these things. So there were things that government always did campaign about. And it's always about the ABC. You get like, you, know, you get the activists, you get the broadcasting, then you get the change maker. And then when the change maker becomes involved and the law changes, then you have to make it a social norm. So there are like, you know, it's really getting that message out and really making people feel like it's a sense of ownership. But I think for me, that's one of the things that I'm really good at is to basically take an issue and deconstruct it and really make it into something that people can really consume. And my thinking around a lot of the stuff that I did in politics within the civil service really set me up for being able to make something like FGM palatable. Because I think for a long time, everybody was just like, just talking about the horror of FGM. And I'm just thinking, it's actually just really stupid. You have to be able to mock it. 
So it's always about coming at a problem in a different way. And Daughters of Eve is 10 years old now. What was the thinking behind that? What were you setting out to achieve? And what? And it's still going. So what are your plans going forwards as well? Yeah, no, so Daughters of Eve, it's not still going because we oh, have like, reached, reached the thing that I really wanted because I was and still am one of the only activists who lived here before her FGM and also after her FGM. So for me, it wasn't about people wanting to accept the FGM as bad. I wanted institutions that I respected that were basically part of the country that I called home to really take care of me and really practice their duty of care. So education, health, policing, criminal justice, all those things. So Daughter Beeb started off, I remember I met another um, activist, Lelela Hussein, and she was doing a lot of work around young people and trying to talk about FGM. And she talked about how she found that FGM was wrong when she was having a daughter. And I just, and I would sit back and think, I can really listen to a lot of people talk about how they came to the realization of like FGM being wrong. And I just thought, okay, am I just weird? Because I just thought it was wrong from the first time I had it. And then I remember sitting with, ironically, I was still in, like, you know, working in the civil service kind of setting and I was at the home office and I was talking to somebody and they, and, and, and they wanted to do something about FGM. And I said, oh, there's an incredible organization called Daughters of Eve. Have you heard of them? And they want to really reframe um, FGM as a form of violence against women and girls. And they're like, yeah, 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 they're brilliant. I was like, well, they don't actually exist because I just really wanted to test out. Because I didn't have, in my, in my previous job, I had the money and the budget to go test out to do audience testing on like names and like views and like ways of doing that. And then I remember they say, yeah, it's really brilliant. And I was like, okay, that's just like, it doesn't really exist. But it was like, I really wanted to get to these, I wanted to get to these people within civil service that I worked with in the home office. And then I went off to, like, I think it was like a photo, like it was somewhere where, where you could do printing. It was like a printing place in Leytonstone. And I said, I want to do a logo. And I said, I want the, daughter to look like a girl and it has to like you know uh, what was it it has to look like like so it has to be like in different crayons like a kid's writing and then the eve needs to be back to front and in black. so anyway so we just came up with this like random logo and that became the logo and it, and it literally within like six seven years it became the most successful campaigning program because of the fact that i had the pre-existing activism and i knew how politics worked and we knew what to do and i knew how to really make conversations palatable and really roll back from showing images of girls being cut talking about fgm as like a community issue rather talking about it as a as a violence against women and girls issue as a child issue as a, as a as a child abuse issue and last year when we got fgm into the children's act that was kind of my I think that was kind of like the final appeasement of my inner child and I really knew that girls here would be safe. And then I started the Five Foundation, which ultimately is about like, you know, saying that if we are going to end FGM, again, like, you know, correcting misconceptions. Everybody thinks that women in Africa and FGM is happening in Africa because people are ignorant and they don't know about it. Trust me, women know about FGM in Africa and they want to get rid of it unless we give women the ability to be able to make money and make decisions and be economically independent and economically able to leave communities and the patriarchy behind them they're not going to be able to end fgm so now like you know what i've done is like start the five foundation and again it's like the same kind of mountain that i have to kind of climb is to basically deconstruct a lot of misconceptions of like everybody thinking all the aid industry is the way to end fgm community dialogues the way to end FGM I'm like that's not the way to end FGM the way to end FGM is to work with women who've already undergone FGM who are haven't had children yet or who have just had children 
and really give them economic empowerment. And then they can decide how many more children they want to have, who they want to have them with, and they will definitely not choose to cut those girls. When it comes to politics, I mean, you did stand in the 2017 election, didn't you, for the Women's Equality Party? Yeah. Do you think going through that route is the most effective way to make change? Because clearly you're doing a lot already, but do you think it becomes more more effective in that way? I think the only, the only reason why I stood for the Women's Equality Party was that they stood for principles and policies that I would happily vote for any day. So universal childcare, and violence against women and girls, looking at the education system, healthcare, real inequalities um, within education and healthcare again. So those are things I could be really, I, you know, I would stand against the whip. I would, I would stand with the whip on that. But I think for me, I think you can do more out of politics than you will do in politics as a politician. I think to be a campaigner and to be a politician, especially within our tribal political landscape at the moment is a very difficult one. So I think like, you know, for me as an activist and for me who wants somebody who wants to really see real change, I think being outside of politics and then really connecting with politicians that can align with you on that issue, I think is a great thing. If you become a single issue politician, then you become, then if you want to succeed in politics, like if you want to stay as a backbencher for the rest of your life, then that's like, you know, that's, that, that's fine. You can really do things and put like, you know, private member bills and all these other kind of things. So I think to really progress when politics has become a vocation rather than something that people did after they've kind of finished their life and really wanted to kind of use those learned experience in, it's really difficult, I think, to be an activist within, within politics. I think it's better for you. I think I, always re- I would recommend being a politician that seeks out activists that you can stand with because then you can be broader in what you want to really legislate against. And do you think your views still align with Boris Johnson? Because I know you've called him a real feminist in the past. Do you still believe that? Yeah, I do. You know, one of the key things that, you know, that has really hurt and annoyed me over the last two and a half years has been like Boris Johnson won London twice and is one of the most cosmopolitan cities I think a lot of people have used fake outrage on racism and all these things against the Prime Minister and against Sat Goldsmith but there are two men who have stood with women in the developing countries some of the most left behind and vulnerable women in the world when they didn't have to so I do like you know anybody that, that believes that women should be empowered and we should be using our politics and our economic power and our privileges in order to stand with the most vulnerable people on the planet somebody that I will always align myself with and and I will call a feminist you don't necessarily have to agree with somebody every single day politically but if you know what their core is and I know what Boris Johnson's core is then I stand with that and I stand with like you know I would want him as a prime minister rather than Jeremy Corbyn who had no I had no respect for the realities of what black women or black people could actually achieve. The Woman of the Future is all about being collaborative. Would you say there's a person throughout your career trajectory that has helped you or opened doors for you or that you admire the thinking of in that kind of capacity? Um, Do you know what? There's a lot of like the people that I consider my heroes are women whose names we will never know because they're incredible African women who are on the continent every single day and they're doing incredible things. And also I really respect African women who and I you know, that put themselves in positions of leadership in, in terms of politics because one of the key things that I really that really infuriates me is the fact that when a woman becomes a leader, we, we expect her to fix everything. Like, you know, men have run the continent of Africa for almost seven decades and they've kind of run it to the ground. And yet when a woman comes, we expect her to fix every ill that has been going. But I think 
if we are gonna talk about somebody that I respect that never had to do anything and that has opened doors, there are two people. One is Kali Moran. When I first started my activism in the midst of like so much trolling and hate from people who were actually upset that I was calling FGM a form of violence against women and girls, she stood with me and she sent me love and she sent me like compassion. And another person would be Zach Goldsmith, who again, when he didn't have to open doors and do things, has done that and has always stood with me and, 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 and has always been angry on behalf of African women. I think Zach Goldsmith, Kathleen Moran, and also Boris Johnson are people that I have a lot of time and respect for in terms of the work that I have done from a political and kind of a person level. And Jude Kelly at WOW. I think WOW, the Women of the World Festival, has always been the platform that has also allowed me to be able to turn up every year and say the same thing again and again and never compromise my voice so it's really been interesting that I've had a very eclectic um, level of support throughout my activism and many of those have come from places that you would not necessarily have assumed were the places that like you know somebody like me would find friendship and support. So across all the work you've done is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? Um, I think, you know, you know, one of the things that really is kind of interesting is like how everybody thinks this, this is like, there's something that I, I, I can kind of deal with, but I think it's something that we have to address in the next, like, you know, as we go forward post COVID and post the whole wave of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is again, opening up a lot of deep rooted racism with the fact that it's really interesting that I, because I'm a black woman, I'm not expected to be a complex person with multiple views and somebody who can actually navigate the world holding several different views and, and being able to communicate and connect to several different people. So I think one of the things I'm really proud of is my ability to withstand a lot of racism and a lot of sexism by a lot of well-meaning white women you know, within the development sector and well-meaning white men who think that they know what an African woman should be doing and should be thinking and really just like get up every day and just like carry on because the whole point is that I don't have the privilege to wait around for somebody that has my identical political ideology to become leaders and everything else. I think I'm kind of proud of the resilience that I've had throughout this because it has been super hard and everybody thinks that what I do is just for fun and it's not actually a job. It is a job. It's like people always say, oh, how do you do what you do? I'm like, I've got three law degrees and I study before I open my mouth. So my activism has been strategic and it has been purposeful. I think it speaks a lot of people that see that as just like me talking about my experience of FGM rather than actually really articulating a concept of like, you know, how we can really re- reach a place where something that has tarnished the world for 4,000 years can really end. I mean, having that kind of resilience, though, that must have a real impact on your mental health, right? How do you manage that? Yeah, it has. It has. Like, you know, I have, I'm not going to lie, I have broken down a few times. And I think 2014 was completely a hard time when I put together and helped win a £26 million bid. And then after they won the bid, they were like, well, now you're not like, you know, you're not necessarily, we don't really need a campaigner. So can we just take you part time and pay you £750? for all your work and I was just thinking but we and then and then we need ambassadors who can be more vulnerable it's been interesting so I'm not going to say that I haven't had gut-wrenching emotional heartache as a result of people that I trusted that would do the right thing in this sector 
but it's like you know I just again I just knew that there's not going to be anybody else who's going to have the level of privilege that I have in order to be able to get back up and stand up and I think I'd also like to acknowledge that is that I think it's because of my family and because of my educational background and because of the family background that I came from that I could kind of pick myself up again and I'm really just like you know really withstand a lot of the things that were coming at me especially during the 2019 election which was just like honestly just which was around also the same time as we were launching the five foundation which I'm incredibly proud of right I've got some quick fire questions what would you describe as your greatest success um I think my greatest success is my niece and my little cousin not knowing about FGM and your greatest failure I think my greatest failure has been not being not 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 giving myself enough time to have a personal life. The mantra of the women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Um, it means like I'm always like one of the things that I think is like I do believe in collaboration. I do believe that there can be no separation between just good and evil. We're all flawed in our own places. So therefore, to be kind to everybody. So I will never. I think it's kind to never idolize anybody to the point where you can't critique them. And I think it's incredibly kind never to denigrate or bring somebody down to the point where you dehumanize them. So I do believe that kindness and collaboration are the way to go forward because that's why the Five Foundation is called the Global Partnership. I believe in partnership. I believe that we all have a massive role to play in really achieving a world free of FGM, a world where the sustainable development goals are a reality. So I think it's a mantra that I live by and one that I will always support. Is there anything that scares you? Um, so it's really interesting. It's not, it's not so I've, I've just started not actually making the time to fall in love and have a relationship. I think that is the thing is the fact that lockdown has really highlighted the fact that, yes, I do have friends. I do have these things. But I think the idea of really having a personal life and giving it an opportunity would be a great thing because I think I have always been because I think it's to do with my way of dealing with the trauma of the FGM was to be extremely successful and never failing I've never failed at anything and if I knew I wasn't going to be able to I can succeed in anything that I never tried it so I think the idea of falling in love and having a real relationship I think that's the thing that really scares me not giving it a go I don't I don't mind if I give it a go and it doesn't work out but not giving it a go is something that I'm very conscious about right now how have you found the pandemic? Are you hoping that we're going to take some learnings forward from it? Yeah, I'm like, do you know what? It's been interesting because it's, it's basically proven our hypothesis, right? That international development agencies are not the way to really get local and sustainable change going because they don't work. But also it's shown the massive inequalities in the world. And for me, if we do really want a better and more prosperous world, which obviously that ultimately means where gender equality is a reality, we have to do things differently. I think there's a massive conversation about building back better, but we can't build back better by just putting more force into what we were doing before. We have to like take a moment, listen and build back differently. And that is the only way that we can be better. So for me, I think it's a moment that our greatest mistake would be if we went back to normal. Everyone's like, oh, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. I don't want things to get back to normal, especially in the sector that I'm in, which is development. What's left on your to-do list? So it's, we have two things. So the Five Foundation has two funds. So we've just finished our inception phase. The first fund is for activist women who are on the front line who are not getting paid. So in order for them to sustain people, to be fair, is to 
get rid of the racism and the sexism within the development sector because I've spent a year and a half saying we need to trust African women, we need to trust African women. And the pushback I got on that was just like, I really can't tell you when everybody was like, oh, maybe we just need to do, like, you know, maybe we just need to do things differently. I'm like, it's not differently. It's like people are racist. Institutions that are in, in the philanthropy sector are racist. Development agencies are racist. We just look at this place of where, and, and we shouldn't be scared of saying that. We shouldn't be scared of saying the fact that we, we've built an aid industry that is predominantly set on white supremacy. The fact that white western countries are going to come and help and save you so this savior complex we have to say that we were wrong and we really want the world to be better so therefore let's deconstruct that and let's actually work in solidarity with you and africans are not going to hold a grudge i'm not holding a grudge i want people to learn so for me it's about deconstructing that and i think that sounds like a massive task but i think we're really in an opportunity where we can say like you know the way that we give aid the way that philanthropy works the way that we look at ending poverty is systematically connected to our own superiority and the way that we see people in the developing countries as being inferior as opposed to people that are living in injustices that are created by people in their countries and things that we fight about every single day so i think that's for me it's like to have a very kind and collaborative conversation with the aid industry to say it's problematic but it can be fixed why is it called the five foundation am i being very naive in that no, no. So basically, it's Sustainable Development Goal 5. So we right. think, like, you know, in order to achieve a gold, um, it's kind of, it's it's kind of a flip thing. So the global average age of FGM is 5, which is horrific. Right. Mm. And 5 is also the Sustainable Development Goals for gender equality. And for us, it's like, you can't have gender equality unless you have an end to FGM. We can't be building palaces about, like, you know, equal pay, equal representation end in violence when we're actually cutting five-year-old girls for nothing other than to sell them for two cows rather than for one cow. So it ultimately, it's a flip on that whole thing of like the foundation of the five, sustainable development goal five is to end FGM. Because once we do that, everything else will fall into place. Thank you so much, Nimke. You're a huge inspiration. And I hope that people listening to this will be inspired too. And I just thank you genuinely from the bottom of my heart for everything that you do and for taking the time to talk to me. So thank you. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.